0: Hello and welcome to Why, Though? A personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, a confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode 17, XL by Alien Crime Syndicate. This month I have reworked another of my old blog entries. I am about ready to get my stereo back, at least in a temporary kind of shape, but I'm also traveling this week, and so I'm just going to have to wait, I think. Gotta stop doing five things at once, start scaling it back to four. Anyway, today we will be discussing XL by Alien Crime Syndicate. I bought this album at Princeton Record Exchange. The album had some pretty snazzy packaging, which as far as I can tell is why I bought the album. The four band members are on the cover in a grayscale picture on a yellow background with six white dots behind them. It's kind of a mid century modern aesthetic. Had I checked the copyright, I would have noted that these guys are on a major label and had come out at the same time as Smash Mouth, which made these kinds of minimalist jet age covers very in and chic. The album has no real liner notes. Typical. Musically, the album features high register male vocals that aim for pleasant, major key harmonies with a focus on pop hooks and energetic playing speeds, and a tinge of psychedelia in the production. Wait, wait a minute. I, I know that description. I know that genre from somewhere. Is it... Wait. No. Not... POWER pop. <laughs> yes, kiddies, we have a power pop band, and that means we are going to be delving into a bit about that genre and where it was in the late 90s and early 80s. Strap in. As with most modern rock genres, we're going to have to go back to the Beatles here, particularly the mid-career band when they had just made the crossover to American audiences. This was the moment where they had their greatest reach in popularity, but were arguably presenting a version of rock and roll that we might tentatively describe as bubblegum, or bubblegum adjacent. The Merseyside sound they popularized brought in a ton of influences, to be sure, from doo-wop to roll. All the 50s-era rock and blues genres were kind of put together into a very Anglo-Celtic working-class blender and came out sounding like every teenager's dream. Famously, the Beatles didn't stay this way. Having songwriting ambitions beyond rehashing American rock and roll but British, the Beatles tapped into and also helped push along the growing psychedelic genre and took their fans into a new kind of musical exploration. But not everyone was happy about having to learn to love the sitar notably a scrappy group of kids from London led by one Pete Townsend and known as The Who. It was Pete Townsend who coined the term power pop in describing their sound, arguing that just because their music wasn't pretentious and experimental didn't mean it couldn't be intense and sophisticated. But as with all the other genres we have looked at, it wasn't really the originator of the term that defined the sound or the cultural connotations of the term. This is because it was in the 70s that power pop got its reason d'etre, As mainstream psychedelic rock acts either got dark or flamed out or morphed into prog rock acts, 60s revival subcultures like the mods, proto-punks, glam rockers, new wave students, and, yes, early metalheads, all popped up around different kinds of bands that were playing faster and more streamlined songs. Unlike these other genres, power pop never had its own subculture, and honestly, it's arguable how coherent a genre it even is. It was Greg Shaw of Bop Magazine who arguably turned the phrase into a genre description labeling a bunch of bands that he felt went together as power pop, and as such, the label can be very subjective. Notable in this early wave were the Raspberries, Badfinger, and Big Star. This kind of critically defined category presents us with some real issues. On the one hand, I do think there is some there there. As a descriptive, there are bands in that rough category of rock bands that are not too weird and play happy music, but are not easy listening either. Like, yeah, sure, that's a thing. They are there bands like that do exist. On the other hand, this would lead to problems in the future as basically anything you could construe as pop rock has been labeled power pop, which watered down the label with an unfortunate amount of baggage. In the 70s, however, this was less of an issue than overexposure. Early in the decade, the initial set of bands was just too similar to the Beatles to differentiate themselves and struggled to find a unique audience. As the decade went on, these early acts broke up and a new generation emerged, including such acts as Cheap Trick, The Jam, and The Romantics. You could also arguably include proto-punk acts like television, The Velvet Underground, and The New York Dolls in this group. And then once punk came and went, groups like The Knack, The Stranglers, and The Cars could be included. In these early days, the borders between the genres were ill-defined by critics and their audiences, and things were very fluid. This sort of explains why power pop would ultimately struggle in the 80s. As punk, new wave, the post-punk movements that would become indie rock coalesced, power pop became the label that was applied to everyone outside the mainstream, but that didn't fit into these other labels. Which was sort of okay until the apocalyptically huge hit My Sharona by The Knack, which was so big that it supposedly oversaturated the musical market, generating an angry backlash, and killed off the second wave of power pop bands. I might push back against that narrative and suggest instead that having a major breakthrough hit from a power pop band took away the only thing that even tentatively defined it as a genre at this point. If power pop was everything that was left over that wasn't mainstream, and then it became mainstream, what was power pop even? This is not to say that the 80s were devoid of important power pop groups. The continuing and later releases of the late 70s generation had a major influence on the rising independent and college rock music scenes, which inspired the artistic growth of bands like R.E.M., The Posies, and Teenage Fan Club. These bands, in turn, were major influences on a little band from Seattle you might have heard of called Nirvana, which was important. After Nirvana blew up, the genre assumptions of the late 80s, displacing glam, synth-pop, and hair metal from the charts, and making it seem like a path in from the indie scene was the only legitimate way to gain rock and roll stardom, a lot of space was opened up for very different-sounding bands, all grouped together under the umbrella of alternative rock. I will need to do an entire episode just on alternative rock at some point, but for now, suffice it to say that while alternative rock initially had a huge amount of variety, The commercialization blender rendered it down into a genre title in the cocaine-fueled maw of the 1990s music industry. Depending on how you define power pop, this was either a new power pop golden age, or an era where a new and exciting crop of bands was bored and died on infertile soil. I tend towards the latter end of the spectrum. Some critics include pop punk in the power pop label. In this point of view, Green Day, Blink-182, and you could say Weezer, can be seen as a success for the power-pop genre. I will concede Weezer, but I think pop-punk in general is a very different thing. It comes with a baked-in subculture that, while sometimes dubious about commercial success, was supportive of the early careers of these bands. Weezer's Blue album had some pop-punk tendencies, but was fairly full-throated in their influences being more Kiss than The Clash. Let's get back to Weezer in a minute. In my opinion, the place to look for power pop acts in the 90s is in that classic and unfortunate 90s strata, the one-hit wonders. Acts like Semisonic and Marcy Playground came up out of the college rock scene and played rock and roll, constructed with tons of pop hooks, but also with a ton of artistry and not a small amount of influence from psychedelic rock. Lyrically sophisticated, dealing with complex and interesting topics while not scaring away the normals, these bands can be said to fall squarely in the power pop definition, such as it is. I genuinely love many of these bands. Unfortunately, they were poorly treated by the industry at the time. An era of notoriously bad contracts from a bloated and abusive record industry, and bereft of core fan bases due to an over-rapid rise to fame, these bands were burned out quickly and never established the logistics or habits required to sustain a career. But that was fine, as far as the record industry was concerned. The independent music scene would always breed more suckers who had no path to public exposure, except through a major record label. By the late 1990s, where we set our scene, things were changing. Alternative rock was, as a genre, tired. It had become a joke for music critics, and while any fans it might have had were pulled away to other genres, college rock, the incubator for so many of these bands, had collapsed in the face of FCC regulations as well as students and critics who were more taken by other established genres rather than playing the experimental stuff being produced on campus. Gentrification, rising insurance premiums, and more militantly enforced zoning regulations had started to kill off the small venues that were the key lifeblood of independent music, and since pop never really had a subcultural base to support it, things got weird. This is not to say that there were no acts in this era. Nine Days, Lit, SR-71, possibly Oleander, and Weezer of course, were all able to poke their heads up into the charts. But of course only Weezer had a career. More importantly, these other acts sounded not entirely organic. In all these cases, the bands were either signed up very shortly after forming, or otherwise allowed themselves to be entirely shaped by the label. They all had a predilection for wanting to write pop songs of one form or another, but the meat grinder of the studio system did terrible things to them. Nine Days cited Bob Dylan as their major influence, and indeed there is a song about listening to Bob Dylan records to guide them through a difficult time on their breakthrough record, The Maddening Crowd. Unfortunately, the record itself is glossy as a mirror and auto-tuned within an inch of its life. I honestly enjoy the record. I would even say I love it at some level. There's a core of good songwriting, but it's also kind of a sad record to listen to. Even at the time, and despite every song being in a major key, it just sounds like someone with real talent being strapped into a cage. Alternative Rock, and its unseen conjoined twin, Power Pop, had no alternative means of support, and was stuck in a loveless and abusive marriage with the record industry. It was in this context that our band for today, Alien Crime Syndicate, was born into the world. Their career was not particularly long. Formed in LA in 1997, they were quickly signed by an indie label, recorded an album, and released it, all within a year. However, the label then folded, leaving them with little to show for their work. As was custom for bands in the 90s, they then moved to Seattle, where they began playing shows to support their orphaned album, and garnered at least some attention. They found a new label, which allowed them to record and tour in support of an album, but then spent some time label surfing amongst indie record labels of the area. Ultimately, the two albums they put together in this era were well-received by the local scene, and received write-ups by AllMusic and Pitchfork. Alas, they failed to break radio outside of Seattle. XL from Coast to Coast, the album we are discussing today, came out in 2002, and it was also well-received. Interestingly, it was self-produced, and they didn't get onto a real label until after they had the album prepared. To support the album, they were sent out on a tour opening for Sugar Ray, playing at all the nation's Six Flag amusement parks. Which I think says an awful lot about where the band's career was at this moment. They had buzz, they had attention, but it was manifesting in ways that were maybe not exactly on the trajectory to serious careers. The only other bands that I know that did the amusement park circuit either broke up immediately afterwards, or are called OK Go and made a very strange niche for themselves making elaborate viral music videos. If this album has a theme, it is that these guys were talented songwriters trying to get famous during the era of Sugar Ray and Smash Mouth. There was a market for overly simplistic, rock-influenced pop songs with an edge, so that is what the band wrote and put on the album. The opening track, Ozzy, pretty much comes out and just begs the listener to like them. Please lift up your hands if you like me, if you like Ozzy or the Motley Crew. What's particularly sad is that the song isn't even particularly original. Change out Ozzy for Kiss and you would basically have a Weezer song. Except, and God help me, I never thought I would say this sentence, Rivers Cuomo is a way better singer than this guy. Like, no shade to Rivers, he's fine, but he's decidedly mid. Not a ton of range, not a ton of depth, but he has a knack for harmonies, and he uses it well. He's a great songwriter, not a great vocalist. And Joe Reinecke is no Rivers Cuomo. Honestly, it's sort of inexplicable, because the album is ridiculously polished in every other way. Like, overly so. It works for the genre and the time period, but it robs the album of any authenticity it might have had, and then just serves to highlight the vocals. And I really do not understand how an album this glossy got to press with the vocals this out of key, especially since the songs depend on vocal harmonies for their structure. The only thing I can think of is that this is some kind of attempt to give the music edge and authenticity. It's like, okay, we're gonna polish everything else, but I'm gonna keep my vocals as is. And the producer is just like, you sure? Okay, it's your record. It certainly puts my teeth on edge. It's like if the Beatles added a fifth member for Abbey Road who is credited as the chalkboard scratchinist. Or if the Shins decided to change their sound by pissing on the tapes after recording. Or if fucking Peter, Paul, and Mary took a dump on your chest. (laughs) That's from the original blog entry. (laughs) That was funny when I was a kid. Like, did this guy record the vocals without turning on the monitors? I know the album was self produced, but did no other band members or the engineers think to go, Joe, you're flat on. All of them. You're flat on all the tracks. There's not a single track on which you are really in tune in the entire time, and it's kind of bad. Could we just redo the vocals or maybe rewrite the songs so you're not outside your range? Or something? Maybe he thought autotune would save it, and sadly he was mistaken. Reading back over the last few paragraphs, nigh these ten years later, from the original blog, I do think I need to temper my critiques quite a lot. It was pretty funny, but maybe not fair. Well, not the world's best vocalist, and while another producer might have helped this out, the bad vocals are mostly restricted to the opening two tracks. This is of course not a great first impression, especially since they chose Ozzy as their big single for some reason. Anyway, Reineke could use some vocal coaching I think in general, but most of the tracks on the album are not actively out of tune for their entire run. And all the album isn't bad. There's some decent songs on here, The critics talked about the psychedelic influence on the album, which I guess just means that they did some synth on some songs. They've even been called space rock. I don't see it. Maybe it's just that I'm desensitized after years of listening to Of Montreal sing about turning into a bird or whatever, but nothing here seems all out there. What it does sound like is a bunch of very competent pop rock songs. Drawing on influences from 80s glam metal, 90s alt metal, and grounded in Weezer-style power pop, The songs feature big guitar riffs and a competent rhythm section. They make use of some overdubbing and production effects to create some nice textures, and the record maintains a strong positive energy throughout. There's some genuine standout tracks like Careless, where Reineke's vocals sound pained and expressive rather than out of tune. Musically, the song is possessed of some genuinely good hooks that could have really pushed the song over into earworm territory if the drawing had been a little bit more complex and the bass had moved forward in the mix a little bit. You can tell the guitarist did the production. Not Today is another standout track where the drumming is a bit more energetic, but there's maybe fewer hooks, and there's still something a little bit off about the production. I've been kind of struggling to put my finger on how I feel about this record, and I think it's down to the production. When I first wrote this up, 90s many years ago, it sounded to me like a wildly incompetent smash mouth, but that's unfair in retrospect. This was a self-produced record by an independent band. The songs are actually pretty interesting, and while not the deepest in terms of music or lyrics, there's some fun, playful tricks and some fun wordplay. The songs have energy and good hooks. At the end of the day, I like power pop, and this is a decent attempt at it, if very of its time and place. His vocals do need work, but they aren't wildly incompetent except for those first two tracks, which are awful. And of course, again, they chose to use those tracks as singles, which is just crazy. But still. If I have any reservations about this, it's that the reduction in general, is just off, and not like it's poor quality. As I said before, it's hyper-glossy, but that's the problem, I think. Because it's so glossy, there are things that just didn't work exactly right. And because it's so glossy, it's much easier to focus on those problems. If the album had been less polished, those things could have hit a little bit. I'm not a producer, so I can't necessarily articulate what's wrong, but there's something just, just a little wrong with every track be it the drums being too quiet or too simple, or the vocals being off, and in the context of this extremely glossy production, these issues just stand out like a scream at a funeral. The band broke up in 2005, after another album was lost in the indie upheaval of 2004. The members all joined well-regarded indie bands, including Vendetta Red and The Long Winters. I'm deeply sympathetic to these guys in terms of their career, and some of what I've listened to off their other albums shows real promise. They seem like a band where if Ricco Ocasek had produced a single, they would have potentially exploded, been sucked dry by the record label, and then been abandoned. So, roads not traveled, I guess. Power pop in some ways continues to be the genre that never was and yet won't die. And yet at this point, we've been living with this artificial label for so long, that bands are starting to actually step forward and say, yes, I am a power pop band. Some of my favorite bands of the last 20 years fit that description. Notably, Fountains of Wayne really shook up the genre and showed a path forward musically where songcraft took priority over trying to couple in bits and pieces of other genres. Stop apologizing for being power pop and just get on with constructing the best pop songs that ever were. I would also want to shout out The Bigger Lovers, a really amazing band from Philly that sadly never made it big and broke up a number of years ago, but the songs that they made are simply amazing. Look them up if you can. Links in the show notes. Brought Your Ghost is one of my favorite songs of all time, and that's going to be down there. Probably top ten songs. Of course, Weezer is still out there being Weezer, regardless of what I think about them, so, you know, there's that. As usual, if you want to listen to any of the songs mentioned in the episode, especially Brought Your Ghost, check out the extensive links in the show notes. I'm interested in what you guys think of Alien Crime Syndicate, as my own thoughts have very much changed over the years. As usual, any piece of musical criticism is subjective and all opinions are legitimate, unless you like Puddle of Mud. In any case, hopefully next time I'll be back to listening to actual records, but we will see. Until then, thanks for listening. I hope you find the answers you seek in your record collection. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.